You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas is continuing his series on New Testament characters, now looking at the Samaritan woman. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. This is New Testament character study number 16 on the Samaritan woman, also known in song as the woman at the well. In the New Testament, we see many interactions between Jesus and women, or between the apostles and women. And contrary to what some people believe, those interactions are generally very respectful. Jesus never belittles women. He interacts with them in all purity and respect. And perhaps most important, he views them as subjects and not objects. That is, he sees them as fellow human beings, true persons, not just objects. Uh, that is, uh, you know, so much furniture um, in the background on the stage of life or sex objects. He doesn't look at them as objects, but as subjects. They're not servants. They're not just extras on the set. They're precious to the Lord, and they should be to all of us. In fact, Jesus treats women as equals in the area of discipleship. We see that, for example, in Luke 10. We see that influence in the Apostle Paul, in the greetings at the end of his letters. For example, Romans 16. But today, we're going to be looking at our text, John 4, 4 to 32, because that's where we learn about the Samaritan woman. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sichar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Let us set the stage. The Lord has to go through Samaria. If you go north of uh, Jerusalem, you know, between that part of Judah and Galilee in the north is Samaria. And in the book of Genesis, we read about Jacob's well. Genesis 29, verse 10 may well be the specific reference. And Jesus sits down. Now, we're not really here to, to study Jesus in this podcast, but it is notable in John 4, 6 that Jesus got tired. He was not just divine. He was fully God, but he was fully human. And he had aches and pains. He sweated. He tired. He sits down by the well. It's about noon. It's getting hot. The sun is high. How do you feel when you're tired? And more importantly, how do you behave? Well, if Jesus had given in to his feelings, as I sometimes give in to my feelings, he would have withdrawn, given himself a break, probably said nothing at all. But to him, this stranger who comes to the well is important, and more important to him than his personal comfort. Let's keep reading. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples 
had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So the woman comes to draw water. If you are a little bit familiar with the culture in this part of the world, it's quite odd that she would come in the middle of the day. Still, in the east, the time for getting water is early, around sunrise, and perhaps again around sunset. Certainly don't do that in the middle of the day. Why would she come in the middle of the day, a time when presumably it was less likely there would be others around, and where it actually might be more uncomfortable for her? Could it be connected with her her background, with the somewhat shady circumstances surrounding her complicated family life? We'll see that soon enough. But the Samaritan comes to draw water, and Jesus starts the conversation. Now, he's not ordering her around. When he says, will you give me a drink? She's the one uh, who's getting the water. Jesus has no water. It's a reasonable request. And by addressing her, not ignoring her, He's showing her respect. He's showing that he believes she's a subject and not an object. And then we have a parenthetical comment. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And so you wonder, as they went into the town and she was coming out of the town, did they meet each other? Perhaps they walked right past her, ignoring her. We don't really know. But the Samaritan woman responds authentically. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Woman, how can you ask me for a drink? Now, for the long history of the uh, bad blood between Jews and Samaritans, uh, you can go back even further than the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. You can go all the way back to 2 Kings 17. But that's a little bit beyond our our, uh, study today. But if you're not familiar with it, you should certainly read it. We simply have the comment here that Jews don't associate with Samaritans. They they would avoid them. In fact, four chapters later, when some in the crowd are trying to dismiss Jesus, they cast a racial slur. They say, isn't he a Samaritan? Whereas others said he was demon-possessed. And so this was not a compliment. How different in our society we think of a Samaritan, we think of one who is a true neighbor, or one who will help you if you are in a time of despair. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well? And drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? So Jesus' response is not to defend himself. His back is not put up by the comment about Samaritan-Jewish tensions. He immediately refers to living water. This is a familiar image from the Old Testament scriptures. Um, First to my mind comes the passage in Jeremiah about the the Lord being 
a well of living water, a spring of living water. But what we do is we make our own cisterns. We put our water in cracked cisterns instead of accepting the living water, that is the flowing water uh, from God. We have the stagnant and somewhat leaky situation of our own cracked cistern. Or I think of the living water in the book of Zechariah, where that river of life flows out, that image that's taken over at the end of the book of Revelation. There are quite a few scriptures about water and life. And Jesus offers her, if she just knew who he was, he offers her something that is more powerful to slake true thirst than anything she could imagine. And she says, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. I had a chance to visit this well on one of my early trips to Israel, and it was deep, and I know I shouldn't have done it, but I found a little pebble, and I tossed it in. And it took quite a while before I heard the plop down there. So it's deep. Now you, you don't just lean over. You have to have a vessel. You have to have something. And then she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Now that's interesting. Because the Jews would have said that the Samaritans were illegitimate offspring of Jacob. Remember, Jacob is the patriarch. He's the father of the 12 tribes. But the Samaritans looked to him just as the Jews did even though, in a sense, they split off uh, genealogically, to some extent spiritually and racially. And so she refers to Jacob. She's referring to their common heritage. Let's continue. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he stays on his theme of living water. Listen to her response. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So she has an interest. She's not talking here about physical water, though the imagery sounds like it. Jesus is referring to eternal life, something that is available not just after we die, but something that begins now. And that's one of the big emphases in John's gospel, that eternal life begins when we truly believe. We start to participate in what will come after, even now. And she she admits she's thirsty. I don't want to have to keep coming here to draw water. Is she confused? Is she thinking about physical water? Is she understanding quite who he is? What seems to me, it's dawning on her slowly. Notice this. Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. Now, it may seem at first blush that this is totally out of, uh, well, how would you say? You know, it's, it's out of the blue. It's, it seems like Jesus totally changed the subject. But remember, he's talking about not physical water, but living water, a spiritual source of life, something that will affect us in our inmost being and the pain in this poor woman's heart must be uh, exposed. It must be touched for the water to have any effect. And so he knows, I think Jesus knows she has no husband, but she says, bring him back. 
And of course she denies having a husband, which is technically correct. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. So here the Lord seems to be drawing upon his divine knowledge. I mean, there's no way that you would know. I mean, I guess you could imagine. But there's no way that you could know how many times someone had been married before just by a very brief discussion like this. But most significantly, the man she now has is not her husband. She's living out of wedlock. She's living in sin. Has she tired? Has she simply been passed from husband to husband? Or was she widowed five times? Or is it something even more painful and more complex? For whatever reason, the one she's now with, she's not even married. And we get the image of someone who's who's dying but wants to live. Someone who's who's tired out yet who longs for the water of life. Sir, the woman said, I see that you are a prophet. She's realizing, it's dawning on her, slowly, who she is speaking with. Well, just a few things we notice at this point. This rabbi, this great spiritual leader, a male, is not only talking with the woman, not only talking with a Samaritan woman, you know, ignoring, uh, flouting these, uh, just, uh, these, these social barriers. He's talking theology with her. He's talking theology. He's engaging her at a truly personal level. And as some have also noticed, whereas the Jews would consider the Samaritans unclean, he's asked for water from the vessel She's using, which for a Jew, you would think would make him ritually unclean. Jesus is not saying, well, I, you know, I want water, but, uh, uh, you know, can you put on your latex gloves and we need to have a, a, a plastic liner, or at least let me put bleach in your bucket. Nothing like that. He doesn't accept those, those separations and, and prejudices. Well, We need to read more. Because I think the poor woman's been misrepresented. Because she says, verse 20, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And the first time I heard uh, a message about the Samaritan woman, as a young Christian, I was told that she was changing the subject. She couldn't stand the heat, so she was trying to get out of the kitchen. She didn't want to talk about her personal life, and so she decides to talk about something rather technical. But I'm not at all convinced that that's what's happening. When you're at Jacob's well, you're not far at all from Mount Gerizim. And you know from your Old Testament history, that's where the Jews worshipped. I mean, the Samaritans worshipped, not the Jews. The Jews, of course, are in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Which is it, Mount Zion or Mount Gerizim? Gerizim itself has a special place in Jewish history. Think of the book of Joshua. But the Samaritans, when they broke with the Jews, 8th century B.C., uh, 
revised the religion a bit. You know, they changed the Ten Commandments. They had their own version of the Pentateuch, the first five books called the Samaritan Pentateuch. And in time, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. Well, in the turbulent second century B.C., John Hyrcanus destroyed their temple. So even in the woman's day, on top of Mount Gerizim were only the ruins of the temple. The temple which at that point had been destroyed for more than a century and a half. And this was a a real sticking point. Because the Samaritans thought that that was the place where they should meet with God. The Jews said, no, that's not the one place. You know, Deuteronomy talks about you must go to the one city that God selects. Deuteronomy never actually says the name of the city. So I can, I can imagine the Samaritans had a claim. They would say, well, it's there. And the Jews would say, no, 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 no. No, no, it's Jerusalem. And so she's getting right to the heart of the issue. She's actually being quite frank. And we get the impression of a woman who's maybe blunt, perhaps... She's as direct as she has because, well, let's say the some of the gentleness or the fineness of life has been eroded because of her her long experience with all these relationships, these five men, six men. And of course, the scriptures teach that we can never receive from others what we are intended to receive only from God. And the Psalms, my soul finds rest in God alone. This year, I'm reading the Psalms a lot. I read all the Psalms once a week. And the language becomes familiar, starts to permeate my prayers, and even affects how I read chapters like John 4. So it's not about geography. And now, I said the woman was probably misrepresented. I'm going to show you how I think many preachers misrepresent Jesus. We continue. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. (laughs) Speaking of blunt, Jesus is being pretty blunt. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Some translations say in the spirit and truth. What is Jesus doing? What is spirit and truth? Again, going back to my early years as a Christian, and actually quite a bit longer, I was told spirit and truth. Truth is doctrine. Truth means you have to have the correct doctrine. You must attend a church with the right doctrine. And... Uh, What is spirit? What does that mean? Well, you need to have the right attitude. You need to be on fire for God and zealous. Now, I'm a big believer in being part of a fellowship where the Bible is preached. And I certainly uh, often preach Revelation 3. We need to be on fire for God. Lukewarm is in many ways worse than cold. We need to be on fire. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He says that We worship God in spirit, and this is in the context of the discussion about Mount Gerizim versus Mount Zion. The Samaritans say it's this place, the Jews say it's that place. Jesus says it's neither. He's not saying the Jews were wrong. In fact, salvation is from the Jews. 
That's also in the end of the Psalms, you'll read that. He's not revealed his laws to any other nation. The Jews do have an exclusive claim. And yet, now things are changing. The rules are changing. Now we can access God anywhere. We worship him in spirit. It's not in location. It's not in space as in one particular space or place. We worship God in spirit. You don't have to go to the internet cafe to log on. You can get a signal anywhere in the world. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Since God is spirit, he can be worshipped anywhere, anytime. That's not to discount uh, the, the value of coming together as God's people. Jesus speaks about church, which means assembly. He speaks about that in Matthew. No, no, he's not, he's not decentralizing and democratizing and individualizing the faith. We still need to come together. In fact, in a way, that's what he's doing, and that, that's what will continue to happen in this, this uh, little vignette we're studying. But spirit has to do not with attitude, but with how God is connected with And it's not spatially, it's spiritually. Um, And in truth, is it doctrinal truth? Well, as important as doctrine is, I don't think that's the way it's being used here. For example, three chapters earlier, the author says that Jesus came into the world full of grace and truth. I mean, sure, we don't think he was full of doctrine. You know, he just said so many things. In fact, Jesus doesn't give us a lot of doctrine in the sense we're often used to thinking of it. It's not systematic. It's, he tells stories. He talks about life. He challenges the heart. And I think that's more the clue to what truth is. Truth is being truthful in the inmost parts. Truthful has to do with being honest. Not just answering a yes-no question with a correct reply, but, but going beyond that. Honesty, truth in the inmost parts, like Psalm 51. And now he's really not just speaking to this poor Samaritan woman. He's touching my heart. He's speaking to you and me. Because aren't we all worn out by life? And in a way, more and more, the more pain we experience, the older we get, And if you're listening to this and you're not a follower of Christ, can you not see now why Jesus was so appealing to those who were ready to come clean, to those who said, yes, enough's enough. I want the living water. I'm tired of doing it my way. We really don't have a choice about this. Jesus says, God is spirit. His worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So it's not really an option. You can't just... Choose your religion and be sincere. We have to actually be open, truthful. Uh, We need to connect with God on his terms, not ours. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ, you know, Mashiach, Hebrew, Christos, Greek. It's the same word, the anointed one. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now this woman's uh, understanding of Jesus has changed quite a bit. At first, as she approached the well, Jesus is sitting down. She saw a stranger and he probably came into focus. She realized he's not from here. He's a Jew. He's a man. He's just a Jewish man. 
as you start talking and she sees his insight into things spiritual, she acknowledges that he's a prophet. You know, first he's a stranger, then he's sir. You know, she calls him sir, verse 15. Then I see you are a prophet, verse 19. Ah, but now she realizes he is the Christ. He's the anointed one, the Messiah. And what enthusiasm she has. Now, we could jump to verse 39 and resume the the thread. But what comes in between is vital. Because she is the heroic one, not the followers of Jesus. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? So she's still standing there, it seems. They come back, and they're just ignoring her. It's like a guest is at church, not been there before. No one's talking to him. It says that she left a water jar. Well, I used to think she just left it because they're so rude to her, and she forgot it. But then I remembered Jesus told her to come back, and perhaps there was no need to take the jar all the way back if she was going to have to come back and return again anyway. So she leaves the jar. She went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So, whereas the apostles are supposed to be in training to become mighty preachers, the only preacher in this story, in the presence of Jesus, is this Samaritan woman. And her message is very simple. It's not high-tech. If you're not used to sharing your faith, it's not complicated. She's enthusiastic. She knows she doesn't have the answers. She wants to introduce them to Jesus. Just as um, we saw with Andrew, he introduced uh, his brother Peter to Jesus. We saw this with Philip. He made introductions. The woman, I think this is probably a big theme in John. And Maybe with a little bit of overstatement. He told me everything I ever did. Well, I think that's how she felt. And when we really get to know the Lord, we do feel that. He knows us fully in the inmost parts. Could this be the Messiah? And then the people of the town come out. I guess they stop what they're doing, their work, their daily routine. And they come to Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples... You know the story, I think. They've just ignored the woman. They've, they've missed the vital and urgent truth of, of you know, what it is all about. And so they say, Rabbi, eat something. And he said, I have food to eat you know nothing about. His disciples are obtuse. They say to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And I will omit the next few verses just for the sake of um, time and compactness. But the point is that the mission is nourishing. It's not just nourishing for the one who receives, for the woman in this case, and the townspeople. It actually nourishes Jesus. That's his food. That's kind of a strange way to look at it at first. My food is to work? It doesn't work make you hungry? Well, yeah, sure it does. But he feeds off of uh, seeking God's approval, his father's approval, doing his will, always doing his will. 
When he's in tune with God, he has more strength, he has more insight. This is connected with the living water we were just discussing. And what is it like with you? Are you having an impact on others? Can you really say that my food is to do his work, the thing that's most on my heart every day is to somehow spread the word, to do things and say things that will enhance the gospel, bring others to Christ. Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Look at that. The Samaritan woman, she's enthusiastic. She's probably well-known in the town. It's kind of hard to hide. You know, men married five times before, not even bothering to marry right now. But her life is being transformed. I'd like to think that the man she was living with himself came to faith and perhaps married her. And that was the end of her long chain of relationships. But we don't know. What we do know is that many from that town of the despised Samaritans, many believed in Christ because of not just the woman's testimony, but Jesus' words. I mean, she put it well, but no one puts it the way Christ puts it. And so they, they actually get Jesus to change his plans. He's with them that day. He's with them the next day. Isn't that amazing? Look at their reaction. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. What a powerful story. What a great ending. And, of course, this is a key theme in John. Jesus is the Savior for the Jews, for the Samaritans, for the Greeks. Think of the Philip podcast. He's the Savior of the world. He's not just a a local or ethnic Messiah. He bridges the gaps. He breaks through the barriers. And he'll break through the barriers in your heart and my heart. The lies, the deception, the things we tell ourselves, the things we hope won't be discovered. If we let his spirit touch our hearts, we'll be transformed and then we'll help many others. What do we learn from this woman, the woman at the well? Well, there are a few lessons that come to mind. First, don't write certain people off. Isn't that clear? We may be wrong. Don't write people off. Many social distinctions divide. In Christ, God brings together. You know, it could be customs. It could be dress, ways of speaking, uh, labels. These things divide. But in Christ, God brings us together. Third, a broken, damaged person can still be transformed through the presence of Christ, as was this dear woman. Sometimes the outsider is the hero of the story. That's the fourth lesson. And we see that often in the Gospels, often in the Old Testament too. 
It's those who are in some way outside the mainstream of God's people who get it. The insiders don't quite get it yet. The outsider gets it. And the woman is the hero or the heroine of the story. When you truly believe you have good news, you share it. Because, and finally, God truly loves all people. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You'll find all the notes, if I was going too quickly, and more, um, uh, where, where you clicked to access the, the lesson. It's all written down there. God bless you. Thank you for supporting this ministry. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching on New Testament characters. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.